Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is Vengeance is Mine. Vengeance is Mine. This title comes from a line inside of the sacred scripture in the book of Romans in the 12th chapter, verse 19. Vengeance is mine. Let me put the text in front of you. We read from the pen of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, never take your own vengeance. Never take your own revenge, rather. Never do that, the text says. Beloved, don't do that, the text says. But, but... Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, and here's the line, the title of today's message, here's the line, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now the context of this verse in Romans is not, you're going to get it, you know, my daddy's coming for you, God's coming for you, you're going to get it. That, that, that's not the context, that's not the tone of the text. The tone is a sobering tone. This verse gives us reason to, 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 to pause, to reflect ourselves, lest we be on the wrong side of God's justice. As well, it is a call for compassion. The verse immediately following this verse that I've read to you speaks of feedings, feeding one's enemy if they are hungry. If, if one's enemy is thirsty, the text goes on to say, give them a drink you give them food, you give them drink, you love your enemy, it goes on to say. This isn't a you are going to get it, this is a call for us to reflect. This is a call really for the earth to know that the creator is over it all and, 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 and his wrath is over it all and we ultimately will stand before him. It's a call for us to reflect, it's a, it's a, it's a, a call for creation, to behold the creator. You love your enemies, you give them food, you give them drink. And then the verse after that goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have a calling by the word of God to give, to give grace. We have a calling by the word of God as God's people to plead with wickedness. We, we, we have a calling to, to, to run with our, our burdens and, and our times where we see something and, and, we, and we want to take vengeance into our own hands, we have a calling to trust God's hands. It's in his hands. He's in control. Now, I say this because we need to hear this. We need to hear the call to trust the Lord. We need to be reminded that vengeance comes from him. We need to be reminded that but by his grace, his wrath and vengeance would stand against us. We need to be reminded to examine our own sins. We need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ and where we would be without it. And that gospel, that message is what I come to proclaim to you this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day. Now, as you hear the word of God taught today, you will hear of this good news of what God has done so that his wrath does not stand against us. As you hear the word of God taught today, you will, you will be pointed to him to respond to him. Speaking of the word of God here today, I would like you to open the word of God. Open a Bible and find your way into the first testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Find your way to the book of Nahum. Now the ancients would have, would have, pronounced, it, uh, would have pronounced it more like Nahum. But, you know, we say Nahum, so turn to Nahum. It's a little hard to say Nahum, Nahum. You could clear your throat and say it. Now, as you turn to Nahum, let me give you some historical context. 
follow me into the ancient world, and if you're going to follow me and you want to kind of visualize and orient yourself to the text as we're going there, you, you have to think about the ancient kingdom of Assyria, the ancient land of Assyria. Assyria, that kingdom of northern Mesopotamia that became the center of the great empires in the ancient Middle East, Assyria. And as you visualize Assyria, you want to think about northern Iraq, you want to think about southeastern Turkey. Assyria and the Assyrians were enemies of the people of God. They, 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 the people of God would have wanted to take vengeance into their hands as we See, in Romans 12, 19, however, the people of God has always been called. In fact, in that text in Romans 12, Paul is quoting Hebrew scripture when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. No, no, you trust the Lord with this. Nechem, the prophet, comes with, with a message that is similar to that. You've got to trust the Lord with this. Assyria, the land, Assyrians, the people, they are, they are enemies of God's people. They hated the Jewish people. They hated them. They, they, wanted, they wanted them to be dead, and the Assyrian culture was particularly violent, perhaps the most violent that the world had seen at that point. I, 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 I won't get into the stories of the sorts of things that they would do in terms of torture. They, they were a violent culture, and they were anti-Semitic. They wanted to kill the Jews. In fact, as history records, they managed to wipe out 10 of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, the, the 10 northern tribes. They, they obliterated them. They wiped them out. They covered the Holy Land in the blood of the Jewish people. Nahum is a prophet that goes to that nation, not the nation of Israel. He's, he's an Israelite. He's a Jewish prophet, but he is one of the few prophets that we have inside of the Jewish scriptures that are speaking not directly to the Jewish people, but he gives a prophecy to the enemies of the people of God. His prophecy is directed to that nation, Assyria, during the reign of Ashurbanipal. That's the name that's kind of fallen out of use. Have you ever met an Ashurbanipal uh, at school? Ashurbanipal was a ruler in the 7th century, so, so Nahum is one of the 7th century prophets. The prophecy is discerned by two in terms of the dating, the prophecy is discerned by two events that are mentioned inside of the book. Scholars note that in Nahum chapter 3, verse 8, we have a reference there to the destruction of the Egyptian capital, No'aman, or Thebes, which in 663 B.C., uh, that took place. So that indicates that the prophet was writing sometime after 663 B.C. Then in chapter 2, I said there's two events that are mentioned that help us to historically situate the book. So we have Nahum 3.8 and the reference to no Amon in the fall, so it has to happen after that. And then in Nahum ch chapter 2, he prophesies the destruction of Nineveh, which takes place uh, in 612 B.C. And so he's writing sometime in between these events. We can historically recreate this. So he's this 7th century prophet. He's around the time of Ashurbanipal. He is offering a, 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 a prophecy to people who hate his guts and want to kill his people. The book foresees what is going to be fulfilled in history. As noted, Nineveh will fall, 612 B.C. So he's writing before that. He's foreseeing, this prophecy is foreseeing, this is going to happen. You are going to fall. Vengeance is his, and it is coming. Brace yourselves. The Babylonians, history records, would wipe out the Assyrians and Nehum foresees the vengeance of God coming upon Assyria. You are going to pay for everything that you have done to Israel, the prophet tells them. You are not getting away with this, the prophet tells them. Oh, it might look like you're getting away with it, 
But I have a word from on high that you will not get away with this. The sins of the nations will be judged. Some of them in this life, all of them in the last days, the nations will be judged by God. In the beginning of our worship service today, we read from Psalms chapter 2, and there you have a prophetic psalm that envisions the day when the nations will be judged. Biblical prophecy foresees all of the nations being gathered before God and being judged in the last days. This theme of judgment and the nations and divine vengeance is timely. It's timely um, for us as we are watching the nations and we are thinking about our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan thinking about the people there and watching images of suffering in Afghanistan. There is not time, and Sunday is not the hour to get into the history of Afghanistan, a land that has been plagued by war, death, poverty, child malnutrition, corruption, and terrorism for, for decades, if not hundreds of years. Of course, terrorism is what we are seeing in the news as of late, and right now the Taliban has seized power in Afghanistan and the Taliban, of course, are a hyper-fundamentalist Sunni Islamic group that are known for their violence and oppression. They have much in common with the Assyrians. Unfortunately, the Taliban aren't the only terrorists in town. Our news regularly has reports of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and various other splinter cell groups in the land, terrorizing the land. As, as well, uh, in addition to the terrorism that is in the land, there is terrorism outside of the land. Afghanistan is bordered by Pakistan to the east and the south. You have Iran in the west. You have uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan in the north. You have Tajikistan and China to the southeast. I mean, this, <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a horrible, <laughs> that's just a hard place to live with all of that around you and then everything that's going on in the inside. And it's so far from us, it's, it's easy to disconnect and go on about our way. But then again, while it is so far from us, it wasn't that long ago that it came to us. Of course, we began to hear about Al-Qaeda around September 11th. September 11th, 20 years ago, the attack came to uh, our, our soil here in the United States. It resulted in the deaths of, of nearly 3,000 Americans on American soil. The four hijacked planes that were used as functional missiles, all of them were California-bound. Our nation responded by launching the war on terror, searching for Osama bin Laden, invading Afghanistan to depose of the Taliban. The, the, they did not comply with our demands for justice in extraditing bin Laden, expelling al-Qaeda. And this began the so-called war in Afghanistan in 2001. It was a conflict between allied NATO and Afghan armed forces to overthrow the Taliban, to stop al-Qaeda from having a safe base of operations in the country. And in the last 20 years, we have watched the conflicts in the land continue ongoing they just keep going we 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 from our own congregation you know we we prayed for our brother doug and, and and on this stage just over here with his family we've seen loved ones go there some of you have seen loved ones not come back attempts of peace dashed attempts of a self-sustaining government and law enforcement dashed after the september 11th terrorist attacks american troops took the taliban out in a matter of months but the Taliban never left the region. They hid in obscurity in the mountains and they re-emerged here and there, you know, for a suicide bomber or a little shootout or to try and jack some stuff or whatever. It just kept going. In fact, the Wikipedia entry on the war uh, in, in Afghanistan is actually a helpful read. I'd, 
commend it to you if you haven't been keeping up on things to, you know, spend some time and just, just read through it. It is a, you know, a crowdsource information source, so you've got to be careful. But for the most part, it, it offers actually a fairly helpful overview of things, detailing the madness and the mayhem. As well, it details how various nations, including our nation, have been working for peace and discussing withdrawal. We've been talking about withdrawal for some time. And well, that is what is happening right now as we speak. In fact, it too is now a Wikipedia entry. It's actually entitled Withdrawal of the United States Troops from Afghanistan. This withdrawal is being surrounded in gunfire, smoke, and chaos. The scenes from the news on the ground of the fear and the fighting is absolutely overwhelming to watch. Uh, thinking of, of our brother Doug in our congregation and knowing that he has people on the floor who are there, and as he shared this morning, you know, it's a hard thing to try and fall asleep because you, you don't know when they're going to need you, and there's that time drift difference, there's that stress, and so people are feeling this. This is a, this is a real thing. Uh, one of the most shocking images that has uh, had me up at night and in tears is this image, that picture of the baby being handed over the barbed wire happy to report that they've identified who that child is and identified that child's family and and that's good but you think of the many who who didn't make it out and won't make it out but look at that image in a short amount of time the western back government that has run the country and I, I use the word run loosely here but run the country for 20 years collapsed peaceful and fearful Afghans fearing for their future, racing to the airport, looking for ways out of the country. The Kabul airport has been taken over by the Taliban. All civilian flights are canceled, suspended. Three days ago, the outer perimeter of the airport and the nearby hotel were assaulted by suicide bombers and coordinated attacks. Also three days ago, there was a suicide bombing at Hamid Karzai International Airport that killed 11 Marines, one uh, Navy men, upwards of 70 Afghan citizens, a 13th U.S. Uh, member succumbed to his wounds the next day. The images are heart-wrenching. The viral video of the Afghans r running, running alongside the plane, just trying to get on. And then you see what looked like bodies dropping off of the plane in videos, reminding us of the bodies jumping off of the buildings in 9-11. One U.S. military aircraft that I read about had human remains in the, in, in the wheel well of the plane when it landed, the desperation of the people, borders to surrounding nations being closed. Where, where will we go? The flights are closed. The terrorists have taken over. I read a report that the people must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over 12 years old so that the Taliban can take them. If they find a girl and the house was not marked, they execute the entire family, the report indicated. If a married woman, 25 years old or older, has been found, the Taliban promptly kill her husband, do whatever they want to her, and they sell her into sexual slavery. The reports of this, beheadings, torture, rape, forced marriages, where will the people go? In desperation, they will have to flee for the mountains. They will have to hide in the caves. And thinking about this, I am reminded of the words of our Lord Jesus when he was wailing over Jerusalem as he was carrying the cross to Calvary where he would die at the hands of his enemies. In the moment that the cross was placed on the back of Simon of Cyrene as the crowds were mocking him and, and some in the crowds, the text indicates in the Gospel of Luke, were, were mourning what was going on and there's this great confusion as our Lord journeys to his execution. He spoke of the last days and God's judgment and he spoke of people hiding in the hills 
As I think of the people in Afghanistan running to the hills, I'm reminded of our Lord's warning and our Lord's words here in Luke chapter 23. Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. They're looking for sanctuary in the mountains. There's nowhere to go. In a generation of Jesus offering this prophetic word, Jerusalem would be overcome by Roman terrorism, and the Romans would come to slaughter the Jewish people who were their targets. The prophetic words of Jesus in Luke 23 unfolded as he said, and yet they still foresee a greater fulfillment in the last days when the crucified king returns to judge the nations. As we saw in our public reading of Scripture this morning in Psalms chapter 2, that prophecy of the one who will come, behold, that is the Lord of glory who shall return. Ascended on high will come, and he will gather his people, and he will judge the nations. Now, the theme of judging the nations is found all throughout the Bible. Now, from the very beginning of the Bible, when humanity rebels against God, when, when humanity rejects the love of God, when humanity goes out and and, and becomes these nations at war with one another and hostile to God. And God graciously steps in and makes a nation for himself through the historic figure Abram, who becomes Abraham. And he makes a nation for himself, and that nation was to be a priesthood to the nations who would bring salvation and liberation and shalom, peace to the nations, so that through one nation, the nations would be reached and they would be spared from the wrath that is to come to creation for rebelling against the Creator. This is the plan of redemption that the Bible is un unfolding for us. But as the nations rage and as the nations attack that priesthood nation that was to go out, you see this theme, hey, look, Judgment Day is going to come. The nations will be gathered. No one's getting away with anything. All of this will be, will be brought under the wrath of God, under his vengeance. So by way of introduction this morning, what, what I'm doing is surfacing these themes of nations and, and revenge. And I've, I've asked you to open a Nahum, and I've given you the context there. And I've told you about Assyria and the Assyrians. And, and, and all of this hopefully sort of parallels in way the current crisis that we have as we see how God has dealt in the past with with violent nations, and we're reminded that God is in control of this. Like Afghanistan, Assyria is a nation that is in peril. It is a nation whose sins had come to roost. I see many parallels between Nahum's day and ours. Nahum prophesied in a very dark hour. It seemed a fitting place for us to be this Lord's day, to call us to intercession in a dark hour, and to call us to trust in the Lord. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. It begins... The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nehem the Elkoshite. Now this brings us from this point of opening revenge in nations to the next point on your outline, Oracle, Revelation, and Nehem. Revelation, the word that we have here, the Oracle. The word Oracle that we get in English comes from a Latin verb, orare, which means to speak. It refers to a prophet or a priest who has re received a message that that prophet or priest then turns and speaks what we call revelation to reveal something to the people. To reveal something to the people specifically about something that is soon to pass and or something that is future to happen. Along with foretelling, something soon is about to happen, something in the future is going to happen. Along with foretelling, this is what's going to happen in the future. Along with foretelling, the prophets also foretell. They foretell and foretell. 
A prophet or a priest brings forth something that has already been given in Revelation and brings it forth to remind the people of who God is and what God has done and to remind the people of their responsibilities before God, to remind God's people of God's law, to remind God's people that he's in control, to speak forth previous revelation that has been given. This is who God is. This is what God's done. And also to foretell this is what's about to happen in this situation. This is how things in the last days will unfold. So we foretell as prophets when we're reading them inside of the scripture. The prophets foretell to call God's people to obedience to God's revealed law. And more than law keeping, they call out for the hearts of the people. God, God wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. The purpose of the law ultimately is to get at the heart because the commands of scripture, we look at them and we go, ah, I've broken that one, and the wages of sin is death. You rebel against the holy God, you break his law, now, now you're under that vengeance is mine promise that God has given. We've all broken the law. You hear the law, and there's parts of it you go, okay, I'm doing good in that area, and then bam, you get hit. Well, oh, sh whoa, whoa, you know, oh, snap, I'm in trouble. Oh, shoot, I violated that one. Oh, no, what does that mean? The wages of sin is death. What will I do? So the prophets bring the law in order to crack open our cold hearts and call us to repentance and faith. And in the days of old, they have the priesthood and they have the sacrifice and they're being reminded of, of sacrifice, of, of death and of innocence and of guilt and all these things. Nahum will foretell things about God and he will foretell things about the Assyrians. He wants to get at the heart. So he talks to them not only about the law, but he talks to them about the Lord. Look at, look at the text. Look at verse 2. After we read of the oracle, he, he just starts talking to you about God, doesn't he? And what does he say? A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Nahum is forth telling who God is. He's taking previous revelation, as I said, and he's speaking it forth. The previous revelation that he has in mind here is Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 where we read, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Let me put it in front of you. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. For you shall not have any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We, we speak that way today, right? Someone might say, uh, you know, this guy is so smart. If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of him. That's how smart he is. His name is smart, you know? His, you know, you look it up, there he is. His name is smart. So, too, you look it up, there he is. God is jealous. His name is jealous. In my experience of teaching scripture to people, I often find that verses uh, like Exodus 20, verse 5, or 34, verse 14, or Nahum in front of us, people will be scandalized by this. They'll be initially put off. They'll, no, 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 what do you mean God's jealous? You know, I think that God's love, and I think God's this, and all this, and this, and this. And they, they hear the word jealous, and they're kind of put back by that. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. But see, the problem that they have there is they have a misunderstanding of what jealousy is. They're thinking more in terms of envious. We've got to be very clear that God isn't envious of anything. God isn't looking at your car like, oh, man, I want one of those, you know. God's not looking at your outfit like, oh, where'd you get that? You know, God's not, not looking at your family or looking at your career or looking at your resume. God doesn't have any envy. You envy the one who's stronger or faster or smarter or richer or more righteous or more whatever. You know, you envy them because they have something you don't. God is, is not lacking in any, in any area. He's perfect. Envy flows from our insecurities. Envy flows from our pride. I, I deserve that. I deserve that. 
That's my pride. I think that I deserve that. Or, or, or our lust. I, I want that. I want that. You see, God, God, God is holy. He doesn't have pr- lust and pride. God isn't insecure. That, 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 that's envy. That's not, that's not jealousy. Here's what jealousy is. Jealousy is the desire to maintain an exclusive relationship in the face of a challenge to that relationship. Let me say it again for note takers. Jealousy is the desire to maintain an exclusive devotion in a relationship in the face of a challenge to that relationship. Okay? I, I, I'm in a relationship with my children. I love my children. If I catch my children calling another guy daddy, I'm, I'm going to feel a certain way about that. That's not your dad. We have an, a, an exclusive relationship, my children and I. And so in the face of the challenge of my daughter calling some other guy dad, will you take me out for my birthday? Uh, who is this guy? What's going on? I'm going to feel a certain way, and that feeling is going to be a good feeling. Right? Uh, likewise, my wife. I have exclusive devotion to my wife. If there was a challenge to that, I'd feel a certain way about that. And I, and I should. And I should. Now, you'll hear folks say, oh, you know, yeah, I just let, you know, Hollywood types, of course. You know, yeah, I just, you know, okay, okay, Jada Pinkett and Will Smith. You know, we see how that's working out. You know, no, no, no. My wife doesn't get to go out with guys. <laughs> we don't operate that way. We have uh, an exclusive devotion to one another. Yeah, I trust her. I trust her. I don't trust him. I don't know what that's about. No, no, no. There's an exclusive devotion. So true godly jealousy is about relationship. True godly jealousy is about rights, okay? A jealousy relates to the desire of what rightly belongs to someone. Where there is a threat to my rights, to what belongs to me, then then jealousy arises. Uh, My children belong to me. Someone tried to kidnap them. And I was like, you know, I'm not the jealous type. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's cool. You know, the guy didn't have any kids. Who am I to judge? You know, to each his own. You go, are you out of your mind? No, no, no you kidnapped my kid. It's, it's on. It's, it, all, it, you know, it, it's over for you. You better run to the hills and hide because I'm coming with a swiftness. Biblical, godly jealousy is focused on relationships. It's focused on rights. It's also focused on what is right, okay? So biblical jealousy is, is, is a zeal for what is right. You look at something, you go, that is wrong. I look at that picture of that baby being handed over that barbed wire and something wells up in me and says, that is wrong. The zeal for that, for, for that which is right, this is the biblical concept of what jealousy is. Now, in the case of Nahum, Nahum Nineveh is not right. Nineveh, Nineveh has come, Assyria has come to take what belongs to the Lord, his people. To take the land that belongs to the people and to the Lord that was given in the promise to Abram. To take that land, to take that people, to take and mess with his exclusive devotion to his promised people. They have come against the people. They're engaging in something that isn't right. Even if they weren't uh, God's promised people, say they were some other nation, that is ungodly to run up in on a nation and just start killing people. That's not right. There's a zeal that wells up that's a holy zeal that says, no, that's not right. So jealousy gets at relationship. Jealousy gets at what rightly belongs to. Jealousy gets at that which is right. Jealousy also gets at rivalry. 
Okay? Uh, the, 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 the passage is translated in the TEV, the Lord the God tolerates, the Lord God tolerates no rivals. And that, that really gets at jealousy a bit better. So when we're talking about the jealousy of God, again, it's not envy, it's not petty, it's not lust, it's not pride. It's real relationship, and it's about what's right. It's about, it's about standing up against a rivalry that, that comes to take that which is, is rightly belongs to one or to threaten a relationship. So again, let's look at the text, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Theologian J.I. Packer explains it really well. Let me put it in front of you. God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration and envy and spite as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious, zeal to protect a love or to avenge it when it is broken. Like jealousy, people can be also scandalized by vengeance, God's vengeance. You know, are, are, you know does, doesn't the Bible say that we're not supposed to be angry? We're not supposed to take vengeance? Isn't that inside of the Bible? Well, I, you know, if I, read that, I read that passage at the beginning of the sermon. So, you know, rewind the tape. Go back and listen to it. In the, in the passage, it does tell creatures not to take vengeance. But here we're dealing with God, and he has the right and the prerogative as the creator of creatures and creation to do so. God, God said vengeance is mine. He has a right to avenge because he's the creator. And he made everything, and everything belongs to him. And further, don't be scandalized by vengeance because we're not talking about retaliation. We're talking about justice. That's what we're talking about. This week, this week, a few miles from here, that way, Redondo Beach, on the pier, Wednesday night, there was a man with a knife and a gun who started shooting into crowds on Wednesday night, Redondo Beach. Two people were shot. The police arrived. He, he would not comply. They shot him. That man is dead. There's no scandal in that. You rolled up on a crowd of people, and you started shooting people. And the officers put you down. We don't go, oh, you know, who were they to do that? You know, that wasn't right. That's not loving. No, no, we, we understand intuitively. Like, like, you watch movies. You watch superhero movies, and there's a bad guy, and... Batman's chasing the Joker down the whole time, and then at the end, he gets it. And you go, yeah, that, you know, that's what he deserves. We all intuitively have this concept of, of vengeance and justice and, and, and wrath. The problem, though, that we have is that we often think that we're on the right side, that we don't deserve that. God's anger, listen to me, God's anger burns against sin. Anger itself is not sin. Vengeance, when done that rightly and wholly, there's nothing wrong with that. Forgot to be jealous, forgot to be vengeful, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that. I've given illustrations that should show that intuitively. Make a distinction. The scriptures make a distinction. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin. You see, there's a way to be angry that's right, and there's a way to be angry that, 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 that's wrong. When I'm angry for that which is right, you know, that, that's fine. But because I'm a fallen, sinful creature, I need to be really careful with this. Whereas God, who is perfect and holy, right, he, there's no temptation for him. He's not tempted by evil. He never crosses that line. The righteous anger of God is perfect. It's holy. The righteous anger of God is angered at sin. 
in our moments, even as sinful creatures, we get glimpses of it. Yeah, a guy shooting people on the pier, like, okay, he's dead. I, I get that. We should be angry when we read of people killing people. That should, we should be angry. You should be angry when you see the CNN article from August the 18th titled, The Taliban Knocked on Her Door Three Times the Fourth Time They Killed Her. You should be angry reading about Naja, who was home with her three sons and daughter in, in the small village of northern Afghanistan when Taliban fighters knocked on the door, and her daughter, who knew they were coming, and her mother, who had told her the same thing the previous three days because they were demanding her to cook for 15 fighters and they were poor and they, they were running out of food for their own kids and, and mom told them, I'm poor, I, I can't cook, I can't cook for you and they beat her to death. My mother collapsed, they hit her with their guns, the daughter records in the article. Manazan said she yelled at the fighters to stop, they paused for a moment before throwing a grenade into the next room and fleeing as the flames spread. She said, the mother of four died from the beating. You should be angry about that. You should be angry about that. And people shouldn't be scandalized to read that God's angry about that. I read in the Christian Post about the Taliban going door to door searching for Christians, inspect, inspecting people's phones to see if they have Bible apps on them. The Taliban has, uh, has a hit list of known Christians. They're targeting them. They're pursuing them to kill them. I read on CBN about the persecution of the church there. The numbers of Christians in Afghanistan are estimated right now to be around 10,000 to 12,000. And I think of 10,000, 12,000 of our brothers and sisters suffering in this. And oh, let's put a face on it. This year we sent out our beloved Marlon and Jimena, who are learning languages, who have a big heart for people groups associated with these people groups. And I speak in ambiguous terms for reasons that you already know. But put that face on it. If we, if we got the news that they got Jimena, right? You'd be, be so angry. And then you come to a text of Scripture and, and you read, God's angry at this. You go, okay. You feel that and you know that, God, that God's in control of this and that they will stand before God. They're not getting away from this. They got Jimena, if they, if they got Marlon. You know, our brother, our brother who shared with us in the service, he has people on the floor there. People, he's, he, he has people he knows who died there. And when that happens, what do you say? What do you say? You say, why, God? Why? Why did you let that happen? Nahum answers. Look at the text. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means... Leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind, and the storm in his way, and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Why, Lord, why did you let that happen? The prophet tells us. Because God is slow. He's slow. Not because he lacks power, mind you. The verse tells us. It's not because he lacks power. It's because of the overflow of his patience. It's about patience, not power. To display his power, the text speaks of storm clouds whirling beneath his feet. If you are taking notes, I'll put these verses in front of you in 2 Samuel, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Matthew, in the book of Daniel as well, the prophecy of the Son of Man coming, riding on the clouds. In the book of Revelation here, chapter 1, verse 7, the imagery of the clouds. That imagery serves as he's on top of the clouds, he's over it. Understand, in the ancient world, 
the pagan religions had storm gods. They had gods that were in the clouds. Yahweh's on top of the clouds, man. Don't get it twisted. God is depicted as standing over the storm gods. But Al-Hadad is the ancient Mesopotamian storm god. Here in the, in the text, in the original text, we read, Baal Hama, Baal Hama, that is the, the Lord of anger. Baal is used uh, 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 fr from a Jewish prophet to these Assyrians who understand the concept of Baal. They have Baal in their culture. And, and he says to them, Baal Hama has coming. And he served notice to your all y'all's Baals. He's coming. And he rides over them. He has more power than them. And the only reason why you are where you are right now has nothing to do with power and everything to do with patience. God is slow to anger. In Exodus chapter 34, after Moses broke the Ten Commandments, when he saw the sins of the people as he was receiving the Ten Commandments, and he comes down from the mountain and he sees it, and he, and, and he gets angry, and the Ten Commandments are broken. And then in Exodus 34, we read about how God gives them the, the Ten Commandments again, we read in Exodus 34, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself the two tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets that you shattered. And we read in Exodus 34, let me put it in front of you, verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there with him, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed up in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and truth. You see the cloud, you see the power, and you see the patience. He is slow to anger. You hear the revelation. God is patient and God is powerful. You read in Numbers 14, verse 18, where Moses again reiterates, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. The prophet Nehemiah, let me put it in front of you here, in chapter 9, verse 17, what does he tell us? He talks about how the people refused to listen, how the people became stubborn. But you, O oh God, the God of forgiveness, of grace, of compassion, slow to anger, Nehemiah says, abounding in loving kindness. You did not forsake them. The revelation of Scripture is telling us that God is patient, that God is slow to anger, and we should all say, praise be to God. Because none of you got through this week without doing something wrong. And we all come to this room every Lord's Day to hear about the one who covered it for us. To be reminded of where we would be without him. To be reminded that 2,000 years ago, there was one who was beaten to death, hung on a cross, died in our place. And when we say 2,000 years ago, oh, that might seem long. It ain't long at all. God is slow. God is patient. We say, oh Lord, come, come Lord, come. I'm thankful that he hasn't come yet, for there are many to come to him. There are many to be swept into his saving graces by his slowness to anger. Let me say something theologically here. This is very important. In saying that God is slow, it is important to understand that this is analogical language. It's what God is like by way of analogy. Further, in terms of language, slow talk is, is anthropopathic. Follow me, follow me. We talk about anthrop anthropomorphisms, which are figurative language that is used with reference to God. For example, we read in Scripture that God has hands, or God has feet, or God has eyes. 
right? God's not, that, that's anthropomorphic language. It's figurative. He, he doesn't have eyeballs, you know, corneas, pupils. He, did, you know, he doesn't have ears. It's, it's anthropomorphic language. Now, we also talk about anthropopathic language. That is language that ascribes pathism, uh, passions, emotions to God. But it's important to understand when we're talking about these emotions that we're being anthropopathic, anthro, man. We're using man terms to say God is like, by way of analogy, a metaphor. He's like this. It is important to note this because God is spirit. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, we read inside of scripture. It's figures of speech when we talk about anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms. Human emotions like anger are being slow to anger. We need to qualify this theologically, lest we mess with the simplicity and immutability and impassibility of God. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what those words mean. You lost me. That's fine. Hang out long enough. We'll teach you the terms. They're important to understand. But for right now, those terms, those doctrines, immutability, simplicity, and passibility are just teaching us and reminding us that when we're talking about God, it's analogical, it's metaphoric. He's not like us. Our words can't capture him. We can capture your height, your weight, gotcha. You know, we can capture, you can't capture him that way. He's God. He's God. For starters, he's triune. There's one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You will never run into anybody who's triune. Oh man, the other day I was at the mall, I met this one, this one entity that had three persons inside. Co-equal, co-eternal, it was crazy. He's just like God. No, that, no that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Concerning emotions, God is not going through them the way you and I go through them. That's what happens to the pagan gods. The pagan gods can be soothed, buttered up. They change their minds on you. Marduk, Hamash. You got to go to them. You got you to schmooze them a little bit, you know, to get that raise, to get that girl, to get that whatever. You got you 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 to butter them up. God is not subject. The triune holy God is not subject to such phenomenon. He is not subject to suffering, to pain, to involuntary passions. He is immutable, unchangeable. He's not going from happy to sad and sad to happy. He's not optimistic. He's not oh, hopeful and then oh, I'm doubtful. Oh, I don't. He's not going through a succession of emotions the way you and I do. There is a vast difference between the creature and the creator. Don't get it twisted. God is independent and God is perfect. We are the antithesis. We are dependent and imperfect. As a dependent being, I'm acted upon. I'm acted upon all the time. As a created being, I'm in time. And so it happens all the time. I'm trapped in time. I'm going through successive moments that act upon me. God's eternal. He's without beginning. All y'all have beginnings. God doesn't have one. He's, he's, he's in a category of his own. We belong to a, a class, a species. He's in a category of his own. Our catechism says, right, that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection. Goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. It's all by his will. He's not acted upon. Things don't happen to him. Now, this is a theological digression so that as we're using this language, you go, okay, okay, okay. And for those of you who I lost, it's, here, here, let me say it really simple. God does not have mood swings. 
God doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. When you pray, you don't have to worry that he, you know, he, you know, did I catch him at the wrong time, right? His anger then that we're studying here isn't coming and going, ebbing and flowing, okay? His patience, his love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his goodness, and his anger are all flowing perfectly in the one God. In the book of Psalms, we read Psalm 86, verse 15, You, O Lord, are merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all His mercies are over all of His works. You see how compassion and grace and anger and loving kindness, that's what He is. He's not going through them, ebbing and flowing the way you and I do. He's perfect. Now, with regard to that, the skeptic is going to say, yeah, well, if there's all this evil in the world, if your God is omnipotent, he has all power, and if your God is omnibenevolent, he's all good, then why is there all this evil in the world? He has the power to stop it, and if he's all good, he's going to want to stop it, and yet it still exists, so clearly there is no God. Or the God who exists must not have one of those two attributes, namely omnipotence or omnibenevolence, because he's getting punked by evil. Now to the atheist who wants to raise this, we call the, uh, you know, theosity, an objection with regard to the existence of God based on the so-called problem of evil, we have to remind the atheist that you can't even get started with this objection because you're presuming an objective definition of what evil is in order to uh, 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 dismiss the existence of God. However, if there is no God, then there is no objective evil. It, it's just to each his own. Some, some cultures love their neighbors. Some cultures eat their neighbors. Who are we to judge? You, know, you can't define evil without an, a, an, object, an objective judge who defines what it is or an objective law who de- defines what it is. You remove God from the equation. You, you've just taken your argument out from under your feet. You can't say that there is no God because there's evil because you can't have God unless there is evil. It just doesn't work. Further, with regard to the objection, it is assuming something and it is assuming the opposite of what Nahum is telling us in all of these scriptures. What? That God is slow to anger. There's all this evil in the world. There can't be a God. No, no, no. Hold up. Wait. There is a God. But what about all the evil in the world? That's proof that he's patient. That's proof that he's patient. Now, I didn't need that proof because I got it inside of the word and it tells me what he's like. And this word is telling me that the day will come when evil will be done. It's proof he's patient. What's going on in Afghanistan is proof that God is patient. But the day will come. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 4. Read of that day. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. The prophet Isaiah also spoke like this with regard to Bashan and Carmel losing their foliage. Lebanon being shamed and withering, Sharon being turned to a desert plain. These are all places that are filled with lush vegetation. Bashan is in the northeastern is in northeastern Israel. It's lush. It's nice. Nahum says it's all going to dry out. Nahum says the mountains are going to shake. Look at verse five. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all of its inhabitants in it. 
From a human perspective, mountains seem like they're immovable, right? They're massive, but for the creator, they're nothing. The Taliban was able to hide in the hills for 20 years and come back out like cockroaches and start taking things over and doing evil stuff. But the prophet says, those mountains are going to bow down. Again, it's language of power juxtaposing language of patience. Scholars note that the language of mountains quaking is often associated with theophany. Yahweh's arrival on, on, on earth by storm, by fire, by earthquake. It's theophanic language. Who can stand, verse 6, before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken up by him. Keep in mind the context. Nahum prophesies at a time when Assyria's power is at an all-time high. Nahum foresees... He foresees the fall of Nineveh, as I told you. Nineveh is the capital of the powerful Assyrian Empire. Nineveh, great Nineveh. Nineveh is surrounded by high and massive walls. Nineveh has a bottomless moat around it. Nineveh was fortified by 200 towers. People thought that it would be there forever. Nahum says, nope. The proud city would pay the piper. They were only in power because of the patience of God. The Lord is good, verse 7. A stronghold. You think Nineveh is a stronghold? Let me tell you about my stronghold. The Lord, and He is good. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. That is a comfort to Israel. They're living in that time of trouble. God will shelter them. For the believers in Assyria today, so too He is their stronghold in this time of trouble. He, he, he is their refuge. A refuge is a shelter. A refugee is one who is in need of shelter. God's people would have refuge. His, his enemies would become refugees. They would be on the run. They would be on the go. Nineveh would fall. But, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into the darkness. And he doesn't need night goggles to do so. He's going to get you. You will fall, Nahum says to Assyria. You will be overcome by overflowing waters. It's worth noting here that archaeologically we know from excavations that Nineveh was partly destroyed by the flood waters of the Tigris River. In fact, we have archaeologically, here I'll put it in front of you, the Babylonian Chronicles. If you're a skeptic, you can go to the British Museum and you can learn the ancient language and read it for yourself. It, it tells you that they were overcome by waters. Nahum tells you, you will be overcome by waters. It came to pass. Evil was judged. Verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. This won't happen again. The despised, the plotting of evil, all of it is in the hands of the immutable God who is not acted upon by men, who is not undergoing succession, who hasn't woken up on the wrong side of the bed. He brought the terrorism of Assyria down, and he brought it down to the ashes. Like tangled thorns, verse 10, like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble. They are completely withered. Thorns is imagery of lifelessness and cursing. You are completely withered. Verse 11, For from you gone forth the one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Some scholars here think that Nahum is actually taking shots at Sennacherib, who was the Assyrian king who invaded Judah, destroying 46 of its cities. And this could be a shot at Sennacherib. You know, he... He's dissing Sennacherib, or perhaps he's dissing Ashurbanipal, who I shared with you in the beginning. Now, now he's taking aim at him. Uh, I use the word aim intentionally when I think of Ashurbanipal, because when you look at the archaeology, Ashurbanipal was all about taking aim. In fact, this is in the British Museum. If you get to go to the British Museum, you also have to go to room 10. I'll put a picture of room 10 in front of you. This is the 
the royal hall of Ashurbanipal. And you, and you see these images of Ashurbanipal all about taking aim. He's got this whole room. It's a big propaganda room of him hunting lions, and he's shooting them with his arrows. He even wrestles them. He just manhandles lions and throws them down to the ground. It's a big propaganda room that was taken from the north palace of Nineveh. You know, so you'd walk in and go, oh, man, Ashurbanipal, he's the man. He wrestles, you know, lions with his hands, you know. Yeah, and your, your palace is gone, and it's in a museum, and you're dead, and you stand before God, and you have, are going to pay for this. You didn't get away with it. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, though they are full of strength, likewise many, even so they will be cut off, they will pass away. Though they afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from you. I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a, a, a command concerning you. Your name will no, no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off the idol, the image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave. You are contemptible. Assyria reminds me of Afghanistan. Oppression, darkness, a power imposing the house of its gods. The house of your gods, he says. We've already discussed what's happening to Christians, how they treat Christians. And here's the thing. This has been going on for hundreds of years. As, our, our, as Brother Doug reminded us, there's believers there. Here's, here's the thing. Here, here, follow me historically. When was the church born? After Jesus Christ died on the cross for his people, established his church, go therefore and make disciples. Before you go, wait in Jerusalem. The Spirit will come. Acts chapter 2. What do we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 9? We read of people being converted to Christ, and we read of the people who are being converted to Christ when the church was born. We read of people from the Parthian Empire getting saved. That's Afghanistan. According, according to our Bible, Afghanis were some of the first Christians to have ever existed. The historian Eusebius writes about the apostles Thomas and Bartholomew who went to Parthia, Afghanistan. We have a tradition of Thomas preaching in Bactria, which is northern Afghanistan. The gospel was in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and the Middle East before it ever got into Europe. The gospel was in China before it was in Ireland. The gospel was in Africa before, before it was in London. And I say this to emphasize because, in particular, in an urban context like Los Angeles, a lot of times people say, oh, Christianity is white man's religion. It came from Europe and whatever. No, Christianity is in Africa. It's in the Middle East. It's in Asia before it even made way up there. Learn your history for Pete's sake. Don't come up with me with this European religion thing. It was in Africa. It was in Asia. It was in the Middle East. What are you talking about? Well, but, it, you know, Europe and, you know, colonialism and, yeah, 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 but it was in Africa, you understand? Well, but, you know, well, well, I'll tell you what, what, why it's not down there. Because Christianity was thriving for hundreds of years before the arrival of a religious military leader named Muhammad who started the religion of Islam in the 600s. And our brothers and sisters were in immediate conflict from the 600s on. Bardasian writing in 196 documents Christians throughout Afghanistan. According to Tertullian, uh, 160 to 230, that was his lifespan, there were numbers of bishoprics in the Persian Empire into the 200s. In the 200s, in the Church of the East, in India, Afghanistan, and all the other stans, you know, this stan, that stan, 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 there's churches all over the stans. The Apostolic Church of the East established bishops in nine cities in Afghanistan. That's just the historical fact. 
Islam comes to the 600s, and the Christian faith was all but wiped out in the East, in Asia, and Africa. The Church of the East was almost completely eradicated across Afghanistan and Persia in the reign of Timur. Timur comes in the 1300s. Timur, a little history here. You recall who Timur is. He was the Turco-Mongol conqueror that took over Afghanistan, Iran, and Central Asia. Timur's military campaigns are estimated to have caused 17 million people to die. And Timur was a Muslim. He, he looked up to Genghis Khan as his role model. That tells you. The house of their gods, Nahum says. The violence of their hands. They'll come against the people. The people will have to run to the mountains. This is a theme of Nahum. It's, you know, those themes we see in, in, in Jesus in the last days. And what God will do is he will gather his people. He'll protect them. They'll have refuge in them. He's slow to anger towards the enemies of his people. But they will be judged. They will be judged. And as we hear that, we have to be careful not to go, you're going to get it, because again, what we began with in Romans, God calls us to love our enemies. God calls us to have compassion. God calls us to pray for those who persecute us. God tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that we are enemies of God, and that God the Son would become a man and die for us while we were his enemies. The good news is that he has come, and he has removed us from this rebellion. He has rescued us from the Taliban. And he has brought us home to be one of his very own. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Look at this beautiful passage. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to come to repentance. And that's my prayer today, that all who hear this word would likewise respond and know. When you look at the news and you see things to be angry at, and you're right to be angry at some things that we see, to be reminded that but by the grace of God, God's perfect anger would stand against you. It's only by the news of the one who died in your place. And you only get that payment if you humble yourself before him and you cry out to him and you say, forgive me, and you surrender. You stop being at war with him. Forgive me, Lord. I have sinned. I want to have peace with you. That is the good news. And in the beauty of Nahum, look, your, look, look, look back at the text. Nahum ends with a message of good news. Verse 15, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. The, the feet of a runner who comes to the mountains. That, 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 that is uh, one who is sent in a time of war to let him know that the war is over. Horses can't get up those hills. You send a runner. A runner will run and bring the good news. The war is over. Look at verse 15. Who announces peace? The war is over. He has provided a way for you to be reconciled to him. Celebrate your feast, verse 15, O Judah. Pay your vows, Judah. Judah, you do what's right. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The text provides the promise of peace. The text provides the promise of judgment. Which side will you be on? Repent, humble yourself, surrender, have peace with God. He loves you. He's true. He's good. He'll never let you down. He'll never leave you. You will have refuge in him. Or refuse and choose your way and be at odds with him. And face, face yourself in rebellion against him. And we know where that ends. Nahum is a prophet to enemies. Nahum brings bad news to those enemies. He's a prophet from Israel who speaks to Assyria. Bible trivia, there's another prophet from Israel who speaks to Assyria in history. 
Who was that other prophet? Jonah. Jonah. Remember Jonah. Remember when God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to tell them that they can be set free, that they can have peace with me. Jonah says, I'm not going. Not because, not because he's scared of the Ninevites. Not because he's got some errands to run. Jonah is upset because he knows, and we read inside of Jonah, how he was displeased. How Jonah became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish where I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. You see, Nahum is 150 years later. And he brings, he brings the oracle of judgment. Jonah was sent earlier to bring salvation. And we, we read in the historical account that they responded in repentance and faith. We surrender, oh God be merciful to us. And there was a revival in Nineveh. So in, in talking about how there's been believers in Afghanistan since Acts chapter 2, we need to be reminded that there were believers in Nineveh before the days of Nahum. They had a revival in Nineveh. How beautiful, Nahum says, 150 years later, are the feet of the ones who bring good news. How beautiful were the feet of Jonah. You have heard the good news. Turn while there is time. The final point on the outline, we've looked at revenge in nations, revelation in Nahum, repentance and news. Let me give you a couple of points. We'll close this down, sing some songs, we'll have lunch, we'll fellowship. But first, a couple of points. As we're processing the news, Assyria, uh, that we've studied today, and as a parallel to Afghanistan, and the language of anger, three, three quick points. The first one is proclamation. Pastorally hear me, church. In times like this, in times like this, the church gets very distracted. The church spends more time online trying to figure out which position and trying to whatever, and they get politicized, they get tribal. We, we get more mad about the elephants or the donkeys, the right or the left, than we do sin and hell, demons and divisions. Notice today that I stood before you today and I talked about something that was political, but you didn't hear me say nothing about what I think about what so-and-so said or did or how we're in this predicament or whatever. Managed to do all that without any of that. Managed to do it by pointing you to the cross. By pointing you to the gospel. It wasn't politicized. Didn't get into presidential decisions. Didn't get into whose fault it was. Didn't do any of that. We could small talk and do that later. But, <laughs> but you came and you heard about Jesus. You came and you heard about Jesus. Whether it's masks, whether it's COVID, whether it's elections, whether it's riots, whether it's racism, whether it's this, whether it's that, you are going to, you are going to come on Sunday. You are going to hear proclaim to you the thing that our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan will die for. You are going to, you, you are going to hear that, and I'm, I'm doing that because I'm equipping you to do that. If someone's going to be mad at you, they better be mad at you about the gospel, not, not, not about your political take or your this take or that or whatever. Listen, church, you are called to point people to the North Star. The lost need you to show them there's the North Star. 
What do you think about, what, do you, what, do you, what, what about this? Did you see, here's a YouTube link. What do you think about what, oh, yeah, yeah. There's the North Star. Look to the North Star. At one time, people literally depended on the stars for their lives and their livelihoods. Trusting the North Star to guide them would give them life. Humans could sail the seas. They could cross trackless deserts without getting lost by keeping their eyes focused on the North Star. Slaves in the United States could focus on the North Star to find their way to free states. And that is our calling, to rescue slaves, to set the captives free. And they will be set free by pointing them to the North Star. The war is over. Run to the mountains and tell them, the war is over. You can have peace with God. Somehow in our polarized age, we need to bear witness to God's radiant, friend-making love. God has come to make friends with his enemies. St. Augustine, the North African theologian, when the gospel was thriving in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Asia, he said, he said, he came into the world as a lover of his enemies. He found absolutely all of his enemies. He didn't find anyone a friend. It was for his enemies that he shed his blood, but by his blood he converted his enemies. With his blood he wiped out his enemies' sins, and by wiping out their sins he made friends out of enemies. Hear me. Hear this point of proclamation as we apply the word today. Because there are people who are making enemies over things that don't matter. They're making enemies even among God's people over things that don't matter. Our job is to point people to the North Star. Our job is to point them to the one who suffered on the cross, who endured his shame, and cried out while he was bleeding out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Take the cup. Open the top. Take the bread. This is a picture of what has been proclaimed to you. It's free. It's free. No one charged anything for you to have this bread in your hand today. This message is free. And in saying it's free, remember though, that is the most expensive thing that the world has ever seen. The infleshed Son of God who came for us. Let us remember Him. Now hang on to the cup for a second. Let me move to this next point. Proclamation. My next point is perspective. Similar. Pastorally, I'm burdened seeing the way Christians have acted in really 2019 through 2021. Ah, there's a lot of stuff to be mad at in our culture, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff to be distracted by. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things to be worried over, fearful over, combatant over. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of things we could cancel, people we could cancel, groups we could cancel. There's anxieties that we will get canceled. A professor said something you didn't like. Let's just put it in perspective. Young Christian student at school, professor said something you didn't like. Put it in perspective. In Taliban, they don't get to go to school. Women go to jail for doing basic things without a male guardian. In China, they round you up for having the wrong religion and send you to a government camp. Let's just put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah, there's stuff to be mad about. Yeah, yeah, you see what, 
I'm being careful not to use any examples, but I'm thinking of them. Right? There's all kinds of things to be mad about. We don't have it bad. There's a reason why people are handing babies over barbed wires to us. Because America is an incredible place. California is an incredible place. Turn off those news channels that are telling you otherwise. Los Angeles is an amazing city. If you are saved here, you've been called here to love this city. We don't treat it like Jonah treated Nineveh. We love Los Angeles. We love California. We love this country. We are blessed. Get perspective. Get perspective, not just by looking at the world and how real people have it bad. Okay? Oh, but the taxes here. Oh, but the gas prices. Oh, but the... Okay, you, you clearly aren't watching what's going on in the world. But that's not the perspective that is the point of the point in front of you. The perspective is gospel. The gospel gives us perspective. We deserve to die. We don't deserve to be here. This is a cup of blood reminding us of one who gave everything for us, who suffered everything for us. And if he didn't do this, if the early church didn't do this, if those disciples didn't go to Afghanistan and Asia and Africa and Europe and so on and so forth, we wouldn't be here. Our perspective has to be gospel. Rent is high. Gas is high. You're never going to make it. You're not going to have the... The, the, the picket fence, the American dream. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to the American dream. We're called, Hebrews 13, 14, to the city that has yet to come. We are called, we are called brothers and sisters, to the kingdom, Hebrews 12, 28, that cannot be shaken. So as we drink the cup this morning, let's gain perspective and renew our calling, and I'll put it in air quotes, to suffer in California sake of the gospel. We're going we're gonna to suffer. It's going to be hard. People aren't going to like us. We're going to be marginalized. We're going to be canceled. Government does goofball stuff. Whatever. We drink the cup and we proclaim the one who has come for California, Los Angeles, you and I. Final point, we proclaim the parousia. Had to keep the peas going. You know me. That's the fancy word for he's coming back. That is our message. The Apostle Paul, in giving this cup in Corinthians, he said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he comes, we read, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that he will put all enemies under his feet. Assyria fell. Taliban's going to fall. America's going to fall. All the nations of the earth are going to fall when the king comes. Our allegiance is to him. Our allegiance is to the kingdom that has yet to come. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the news this week. But here's one thing I know. Never, ever, ever will the news broadcast that the kingdom of God has been shaken. You will never see that on the news. Never will you turn on the news and hear that the royal priesthood of the church of Jesus Christ has been, has, has, has been shaken. Because we are promised that the, church, that the church will prevail against the very gates of hell. And so until he comes, we will go and we will proclaim to the broken and the hurting the love of God in Christ for them. Let me pray. Let's sing praises to the one who has come. Lord, we thank you that you are slow to anger. We thank you for the cup that we drank. 
for the bread that we ate. Lord, symbols of all that you have done for us. But Lord, our hearts break watching the news and seeing wickedness. Thinking of, of, of people trying to grab onto planes and plummeting to their death. Terrorists and violence and madness. Corrupt politicians over there and over here. Lord, it, 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 it gives us so much to be angry about. And yet, Lord, you use all of those things to stir in us an awareness that points to something deeper. At the end of the day, Lord, we confess that we're more angry by terrorists than we're angry by our own sin. We're, we're more angry about Taliban dividing a country than we are about how our sin divides us. So, Lord, we cry out to you, be merciful to us. Draw us in repentance and faith. As we sing, as we sing now, Lord, work in our hearts. We need you. Without you, we will leave this room the same way we entered. Lord, but by your grace, we can leave renewed and, and, and changed and transformed and humbled. Humble us, I pray. Receive these songs of worship, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.